This episode is brought to you by Greg Morris Cards, one of the largest sports card sellers on the planet. Greg sells over 80,000 vintage and modern cards every month, including basketball, football, baseball, hockey, all sports really, and even some non-sports cards too. On top of that, every raw card receives the same hand grading that collectors have put their trust in for over 15 years. What are you waiting for? Head on over to gregmorriscards.com auctions and check it out for yourself. What's up, everyone? This is episode 172 of the Wax Museum podcast, where I talk about all things basketball cards from past to present to future. This is your host, Kyle, and as always, you guys can find me throughout the week on social media. My Instagram is at Wax Museum Podcast. My Twitter is at Wax Museum PC. Well, um, I gotta ask here, have you guys been watching the NBA Finals? And, you know, I suppose that's kind of a goofy question, seeing as this is a basketball card podcast. Um, but I'm recording this on Tuesday afternoon. The Warriors are already up 3-2 to two now, and they've got a chance to close things out on Thursday in Boston. And I have to say, I love seeing Curry interact with the Boston crowd in Game 4. I think him winning another title is important. So, you know, to be honest, I really want to see them close this thing out. Um, The only bad thing, though, is that means we've reached the end of the NBA season. And there's going to be a little bit of a void. And yes, I know we've got the draft. I know we've got Summer League. But um, it's just not the same. So, Um, I'll probably be tuning into a few more Fever games for the time being. At least they've got a handful of rookies that are fun to watch, but, um, you know, not quite the same as, uh, as what we've been so used to seeing for so long now. All right. Well, I know you're probably not here for NBA analysis, but you know, the NBA finals gets me excited. Uh, but I'm definitely going to talk about cards today. I want to recap a show I went to this past weekend. I want to touch briefly on a couple pieces of mail and an eBay predicament that I found myself in. And then in today's main segment, I talked to Mike, one of my old autographing buddies. He's got some eclectic tastes and he works at the NASCAR Hall of Fame, uh, which yes, I know this isn't a NASCAR podcast, but we'll talk about how that influences his collection and more. So you'll want to make sure to stay tuned for that. Okay. So this past weekend, I went to the Bay Area card show in the Tampa area. I guess it's really clear water. Um, I've talked a lot about that show before. But I was there from like 9 a.m. to 1.30 in the afternoon, and I didn't even get to every table, which is what I usually do. I try to get to every single table, go through every single box that I can. Well, the main reason that I was so stalled here is because I spent probably at least three hours digging in one specific dealer's boxes. And um, apparently, from what I had heard and what you know, I could hear him telling other people, he had purchased a massive collection. And we're talking over a million cards. So I guess he took all the real big stuff out and he already made good money on that. And it wasn't worth it for him to try and list everything or even to send it to ComC so they could scan it and do all that stuff. You know, he didn't want to deal with the fees or whatever. That's fine. Um, So he brought all the stuff that he wanted to move and he had it sectioned off. He had numbered cards from all sports for $2 a piece. He had autos and relics for $3 a piece. And then he had a huge area where every card was $5, probably like... I don't know, 10, 5,000 count boxes or whatever. Um, 
And I would say a lot of those $5 cards were worth 15 30 sometimes even more. I found some good stuff in there. So this was an ideal situation for someone like me that likes to dig, and that's exactly what I did. So I sat down with a couple friends, and we went through almost everything, which was a fun experience in itself, because there is some entertainment value there in, in just digging, even if I didn't walk away with much, but it turns out I did. Um, I got a good amount of cards for my own collection. I got some stuff that I'll add to my local show inventory, and then I got a stack of stuff I'm probably going to send to Com C. And I think, um, you know, I don't want to count everything up before it's happened, but I think before all is said and done, I'll end up making back everything I spent while still getting a big stack of PC cards in the process. And that's kind of how I've built my PC over the years. So needless to say, um, that was an awesome and, and unexpected experience. And uh, I'm not going to run through all of those cards on here, but I did a 20-minute video on my YouTube channel that was a lot of fun to put together. I know some of you have seen that already and commented on it, so thank you. I think the lesson from all of this is, if you have the chance to hit up a local show, do it. Sometimes they're great, sometimes they're not, but you never know what you're going to find. Okay, I want to carve out some time for some mail real quick. I got a handful of packages in this week, as opposed to last week where I didn't get much of anything. Um, so this is going to be an abbreviated version I do want to point out I got a couple of nice gifts that I posted in other places already. I think I put one on social media. I put one on YouTube. Uh, but I want to quickly say thanks you know, to those guys again. I, I really appreciate that. Um, as far as the stuff that I purchased, I got a 2013-2014 Court Kings Performance Art Patch of David West number to five. And even though there's only five copies of this, it's, it's actually a duplicate for me. I now have two of the five. And I talked about the first one when I acquired it on here, so I won't say too much here, but um, just re you might remember it's an artistic looking card, kind of has that canvas look to it. It's game dated. It's a nice piece of nameplate patch. And honestly, I'm at the point where I'd rather just buy duplicates of patch cards that I really like before I buy something new that I don't. And that's more or less what happened here. The next card that I picked up, though, is an older card. And it's not a duplicate. Um, it was a 2003-2004 Bowman Chrome Gold Refractor of Ron Artest. And I'm going to have to do a comparison video on these Bowman um, Golds because this one is stunning. And, and I've had some others before, I guess. I don't know. Maybe I haven't looked at them close or they were you know, part of a big shipment. I didn't pay too close attention to them. But um, this one really was surprising to me. And um, it was more than I wanted to pay initially, but I think it was a fair price and it was probably going to get scooped up by someone else if I didn't. So I'm happy I did now, uh, now that I have it and I can see it in person. And I want to point out here that I paid a dollar shipping on this card. And that's not the price of the card. Don't, don't confuse those two. It, you know, it was higher than a dollar, uh, but the shipping price on this was a dollar. And I thought it was going to come via eBay standard envelope program, which in itself I have no major issues with. You know, this is an ideal candidate for that. It's a, a thin card. It's a chromium card. Um, but the seller shipped it in a first class uh, bubble mailer instead, which was nice. And, and the reason I mention all of that is because it's kind of relevant to the next card I got, which involves my eBay predicament. So um, I bought a TJ Warren Crown Royale Silhouettes jersey numbered 53 of 99 and this is going to sound dumb to some people i'm not trying to say it's an ebay 101 the seller did not present it this way either but 
Um, the number 53 is significant to TJ Warren because that's his game high. That's his career high. And that's, you know, that big game he had in the bubble, he scored 53. So, you know, I saw 53 of 99 and I thought, Hey, if I can get that for cheap, I will. And I did, I got it for like $10. Um, and the only shipping option on the auction was $2. So that's what I chose. You know, I'm only going to choose what's out there for me. So once it was shipped and I saw the tracking number, I realized that this card was coming via the standard envelope program, uh, which in this case I knew was not good because relics get kind of chewed up in those mail sorters. So lo and behold, shows up in the mail and there's damage from shipping. And it's not a huge crease. Uh, it's probably not something, you know, if I posted the card, you would probably say, oh, that's not a big deal at all. The card itself is not ruined. Uh, but what bothers me is it was damage that was avoidable. That always frustrates me. No one likes to open up a card um, to see that something's not right. So I reached out to the seller. And maybe I should have been more direct, but I wrote, hello, I got this card in the mail today and it was damaged in multiple spots. I don't mind the standard envelope program for most things, but this doesn't work well for relics. Please let me know what the options are going forward. Thanks. And, you know, I kind of just wanted to see how he would respond. At the very least, I was hoping, hey, maybe he'll be apologetic and it is what it is, but he wasn't. Instead, he said, okay, yeah, I've been urging people to use the first class option. If you want that moving forward, just let me know and I'll add it as an option, as if, you know, I'm going to keep buying a bunch of cards from this guy. Um, I thought it was strange that he's urging people to use first class, or he says he is, but it was never presented as an option. So um, I said so. You know, I replied, I said there was no option for that when I purchased this card. Even a thin piece of cardboard would have helped. Uh, to which he replied, it doesn't pass if you put that crap in. I used to do that and ended up getting 75% return from USPS. It's a flawed program. They need to get rid of it, in my opinion. And that was the end of that. I didn't message him back again. Um, I know this is a $10 card. You know, I know it's not a huge deal, but I, I really didn't like the way that this was handled. And um, I want to be cautious here. I don't want to be a hobby Karen. But I don't think it's unreasonable for me to expect a little different response. So um, I've been thinking about leaving neutral feedback, and I haven't done it yet. Um, I doubt it will hurt his score any. I've looked at his profile, and, and I wouldn't be the first person to do so. But as I discussed last week, I'm always pretty cautious about leaving neutrals or negatives. So I'm curious here, what would you guys do? Do I leave a neutral, or do I just let it go? And if I remember... I'll probably, I'll be in Indy by this time. I'll be on a plane. But if I remember later this week, I'll make a post on social media. So that way you guys can weigh in and let me know what you think. Hi, everyone. This is Derek. You can find me on Instagram at Detroit Tackett. That's Detroit like the city. T-A-C-K-E-T-T. I am always looking for Kobe Bryant, lots or singles. Um, so feel free to DM me any Kobe you have available. Right now, specifically, I am after a 2014 light blue and Blue Wave Prism, and then also his 2009 Topps Chrome Refractor with KD. Um, special shout out to Kyle for letting me do this, um, and happy collecting. So I've had a pair of Mitch Richmond collectors on the show already. I don't think I've had two dedicated Kobe collectors, though. And I, I know there are a lot of Kobe collectors out there, but the good thing is there are a lot of Kobe cards, and everyone doesn't collect the same thing. So as you heard, Derek is looking for lots but he's also looking to finish the 2014 
Prism Rainbow. And he mentioned a couple cards, but I know he mentioned the light blue specifically, which is numbered to 49. Don't let that numbering fool you. You know, just because there are 49 copies out there doesn't mean that it's easy to track down. This one is not. So I'm hoping that this changes for him after this segment. Please reach out to him if you have a lead. Uh, make sure to give him a follow as well. Let's see if we can track some of these cards down for Derek. All right, before I move into today's main segment, I want to take a moment to remind you how you can support this show. As you guys know, there are costs that go into producing a podcast. One of my goals is to always keep the show itself free. As a result, I've signed up for affiliate programs with eBay and Fanatics. If you'd like to help support the show in this way, go to www.waxmuseumpodcast.com, click whatever store you need to go to, shop as planned, and the show gets a small commission in the process. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. Hi, this is Alan Siegel, the designer of the NBA logo, and now you're listening to the Wax Museum Podcast. Okay, joining me today is someone I met a little over 10 years ago while we were chasing NBA autographs in Charlotte. And since that time, we've discovered that we like a lot of the same things. Now, obviously, collecting is a big part of that. Uh, normally, I would take a moment here to say, you know, you probably know him better by his Instagram handle, blah, blah, blah. Uh, even though Mike is on Instagram, I would say that's probably not the case here. He's not really in all of the basketball card circles. He's not a traditional basketball card account. So uh, I think you'll enjoy this conversation, though, nonetheless. Mike, uh, how was that for a traditional non-traditional introduction, do you feel adequately introduced? Kyle, thank you for having me on the show. Um, I feel like that's a great introduction. So I'm kind of a, a multi-sport collector, more baseball and basketball than anything else, um, more towards baseball. But we got to know each other, chasing graphs in Charlotte. To me, it seems like a moment ago, but on the calendar, it's forever ago. So we've got about what? 10, 12 years? I think so, interactions? Yeah. yeah. Doesn't seem like that long, but uh, it has been. And, and I'm glad we've been able to keep in touch along the way, because I'll be honest, when I move from place to place, I don't generally um, bring a lot of those relationships with me. I kind of just just let it go. So uh, this is one that we had enough in common. I, I'm glad we were able to reconnect. And then also you made a visit to Florida recently. So I'm glad I was able to um, catch up with you again. We went to a baseball card shop in Tampa called Baseball Card Clubhouse, or I should say just a card shop in general. And um, something that's unique about that shop, I think I've talked about it a little bit on this show, but there is a wall of five row boxes and it is not sorted. And it is basically just go through, pick out what you want, take it to the shop owner, and he'll give you a fair price, which sometimes is scary because I don't, you know, my fare and somebody else's fare might be different numbers, but we went there and we dug for a while. What was your impression of our little digging adventure that day? That little card shop in Tampa was a real fun visit. It was relatively close to the Yankees training facility, which was good because I was going to go see a game there that night. I feel like you've done a very good job describing it and showing it in the video. The wall is, I would say, probably 50, 5,000 count boxes. Probably. And it yeah. just says like 90s basketball in-person autographs, you know, just like random stuff. And for me, it was so much fun to just to dig through boxes that are kind of random. 
I, I spent a lot of time because I'm more of an autograph collector than anything else. There was a box that specifically mentioned in-person baseball autographs. So I was going through that and just kind of tearing through and looking at it. I liked how the shop offered a lot of different types of buying experiences. Okay. So you had that wall. But if you wanted to buy singles and whether those singles were, you know, modern stuff or vintage, there was the display case. There was also a case where I suppose you spend $20 and you draw certain numbers and you get to select items based on the numbers that were drawn. Um, Yeah, they had. So just a little um, clarification on that. I think they were like poker chips they had um, in a, a bag, like a drawstring bag. And they all had numbers on them and they shake the bag up and you, you pay for a certain number. I've seen this at other shops too, but not enough. I think it's a really good idea. And then whatever numbers you draw, uh, you get the corresponding card in that case. You know, if the Tom Brady card is numbered uh, 12 on the top loader and you draw the 12 chip, you get it. And then there's other incentives too. If you get three numbers in a row, if you draw 12, 13, and 14, there's a certain prize. You know, there's, you know, different things that go, I don't remember all of them, but different things like that as well. As a person who's used to going to kind of standard fair card shops where you are requesting to look through certain boxes or, you know, just buying a certain amount of product, having the opportunity to like gamble, if you will. Yeah, um, they, they gamified they, it. That's what they did. They gamified it. Yeah. I could see how it would be fun to somebody who wants to try to just engage with the hobby on a maybe like a non-PC level. Like as a non, uh, like I think as far as a non-PC option, this gives people a really good chance to, you know, drop 20 bucks and see what happens. Um, Right. I thought it was a neat idea. And it was also really interesting. The owner of the card shop, as a minor league baseball fan, it was interesting to me. He is a former Mets prospect, uh, a guy named Jason Weintraub, who played a few years in the Mets minor league organization. So when I saw his PSA graded card on his desk and started putting two and two together between the guy that was selling me my stuff and the card on the desk, I was like, oh, you're the guy on the card. This is a very neat little thing that has happened. Yeah. And then uh, I don't think he he didn't mention it while we were in there, but then I went on the Instagram of the, the uh, shop after the fact, because I've only been in there a few times. And he's got a bounty out for his card in a PSA 10. I think it's like a thousand dollar bounty, um, which, you know, it, it's smart for him to do that because for him to try and they have black borders on these cards for him to try and do that. He's going to probably spend, you know, well, at the time it was 150 per card or I think 50 for the economy level. Well, now things are getting cheaper. So that might be um, a little more tempting for some people that are out there. I guess just another experience that he's offering that's a little bit unique. I think that's really great for a um, for a card shop owner to try to encourage people to engage with the hobby in different ways because there is not a single way to engage with card collecting. You know, like you've got people who are more of a PC collectors, so your Jeff Foster collection obviously the jeff foster super collector there is, um, there there is actually uh somebody that has a bigger jeff foster collection than myself i think in texas but i'm i'm trying to get some of those cards 
there's those types of PC folks. There's folks who are kind of more into the flip and move. And then there are folks who are kind of more like me, where I see cards and particularly autographs as moments in time. What I really enjoyed about that card shop was the opportunity to go through and experience different aspects of what he was doing. Mm-hmm. So whether it was having the chance to engage with the wall, see what he was selling on his more traditional retail space, as well as some of the other um, selling devices that he created to move product. It was really interesting to see how the hobby has innovated, especially as a guy who's about 39 years old, got into the card collecting hobby at the end of the junk wax era and seeing how people have tried to take the hobby from a place where you're just buying packs or boxes to a way where you're engaging with people on different levels. Right. And one of the things that I really appreciated from that trip was he was talking to a guy who was very clearly new to the card collecting hobby. I feel like he was a guy who was doing it when he was a kid and is trying to come back to it as an adult. Right. Um, it, but it's and a different I, space. So it really, he is new. It's a different yeah, space now. Absolutely. And I feel like the owner of the shop was trying to be as honest and real with him about where the hobby's at. So yeah, you like you might pull a $100,000 card or you might drop 200 bucks and get nothing. I feel like he gave him a very fair, informative discussion of what to expect if you're trying to return to the hobby as somebody who you're you're returning as a new, right. you're returning as somebody who hasn't been in that environment. And I suppose he's got a lot of practice with that by now, but he really did that in about two minutes. Yeah. Um, it, I mean, it was kind of impressive how he was able to boil it down and and be matter of fact, because there was other stuff going on. But I also felt like um, he kind of did a good job of, you know, giving that guy the, the time as well, because that, that time is worth something. Okay, so you mentioned in there that, you know, flipping through cards and collecting for you is, is in a way kind of a time capsule. And you and I have talked a lot about collecting. And I know certain things here and there, but um, I think there are some things that I don't know. And, and either way, I think it would be good to give the audience today some context for our conversation. So if you don't mind, can you give me just a, a brief overview of your collecting history? So I was born in 83. So I'm a be 39 years old this year. I grew up at the very tail end of the junk wax era. So for me, seeing these cards that were junk wax that were being produced on kind of like hyper volumes. I understood the value associated with that even as a little kid, but I still thought there was something kind of unoriginal. And around the same time, I learned about cursive handwriting. And during that time, I remember, and I'm not sure if this is actually true or not, but I remember my second grade teacher telling me that there are no two cursive signatures that are exactly the same. And for me, even as a kid, I realized that that meant that there was a unique moment in time that that signature captured. You can't replicate it, so it has to exist within one moment. And and for me, that I think was really important when I started thinking about collecting and collecting autographs. It was not so much of a way to, I guess, initially enhance my collection so much as it was a way for me to experience fandom. And as I have aged, my perspective on it has changed with it. So autographs are more about 
telling a story for me. So like I've got a really sloppy meta world peace autograph, but that card has a story. It comes from around 2 a.m. when Meta walked out of the hotel in Charlotte. Um, it was Kobe's last game in Charlotte. And someone asked him for his autograph. And he was like, autographs? F yeah. Walk with me. So I, I just walked with Meta World Peace until he got to his bar, signed my card, and then he went into, you know, went on to his merry way. So it was experiences like that Meta World Peace experience, or maybe the experience where there was Kyrie Irving signing for about five of us. And one of the five people was wearing a UNC shirt. Kyrie signed for four of the five, took the pen from the guy with the UNC shirt, handed it back to him and said, I don't sign for anybody wearing that. Sorry. And just walked away. And it was one of those moments where you're like, it's meaningless, except that it's a story I now get to tell. Like when I, when I got Kyrie Irving's autograph that day, I saw Kyrie Irving tell a Tar Heels fan that he wouldn't sign for him because of the shirt he was wearing. That's a story associated with that very specific card that I signed. So for me, even though a lot of my cards don't have particular stories, there are moments in history where I'm like, I remember being either at the game or at the hotel or at the event where I had that interaction. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's a way of documenting it. I get that completely. Now let's reverse that though, because then you talked about buying um, pre-signed cards at Baseball Card Clubhouse. So what are you, you're not documenting the experience of getting it because you didn't get it. So tell me what's happening there in your mind. So for me, like part of it is the idea of an autograph is even if it is a very, very brief moment, that doesn't mean anything to the individual signing the, the card. It is a moment where there is some sort of interaction. Um, There's some sort of history and there is some sort of engagement between the person who participated in the event and me as a spectator, as a fan, as a historian of these events. I don't care about scorecards. I don't care about tickets. Those don't tell stories to me. Mm -hmm. The autograph tells a story. And I think for me, that is the most important thing. No, I, I get that entirely. Um, kind of ironic that y- you were there the day, and this was not in Charlotte, this was in Florida. You were on vacation. I had already been living here. You were there the day that Kate Upton uh, almost hit me with a golf cart. And, but I did get that card signed afterward. Now, granted, I wasn't, I should point out, I wasn't doing anything that I shouldn't have been doing. She was just, um, didn't have much of a clue what she was doing. Um, and I happened to be in the right place at the right time with the card. Um, she apologized, got out of the golf cart, signed it, um, and then told everybody else not now. So that was a good feeling. That was something good attached with that card. And uh, well, it, it had to be the intense sex appeal of the Wax Museum podcast. That's what I'm thinking. I, I think so. Yeah, that, that's everyone's first question is, what does Kate look like in person? Um, she looks like Kate Upton. I, I mean, you know, just wearing normal clothes. So not like we're used to seeing her. There's certain celebrities that you see in person. And you're like, oh, wow, they're shorter, taller, fat or smaller, whatever. Um, Kate Upton really did look just like Kate Upton from the bikini magazines, except with real clothes on. With, yeah, a T-shirt and jeans on. Um, she was pretty short, though. 
I don't know what I was expecting there, but pretty short. So anyway, when we have these items in our collections, I mean, eventually they end up somewhere else, um, mm -hmm. whether we hold on to them to the very end or, or whether we, you know, let someone else enjoy them. And you mentioned that how, you know, the experiences are tied to those cards. I've kind of experienced that and I've talked about it on the show and I had Tim Gallagher on the show, who was a longtime autograph seeker. And I needed one card for my 72 set. And he had got that card signed in the seventies and he knew the exact date and he knew where he was. And he wrote me a letter um, basically giving me all of that information. Now that card in itself, probably not super valuable, but to me to have that card and to have that letter and to know that it came from, you know, his experiences that he valued. And he talked to me about it. I, I can't think of a more fitting way to close out that set. And I, you know, I didn't orchestrate that. That's just the way it happened. But, you know, maybe someday you'll be able to pass that Meta World piece autograph on to somebody else and say, this isn't just a, a card that was randomly signed. Here's what happened. Right. So the Meta World piece card was part of a set that I've got about 62% done, 2012 Panini. Okay. Um, I have finished the 2017 Tops Heritage Minor League Baseball set. Okay. And for me... Doing sets were, it was a really interesting challenge. It was a really fun way of engaging with that experience. Because like, I grew up a huge Nolan Ryan baseball fan. His rookie card was the 1968 Topps card set. For me, the 1968 Topps card set baseball is the gold standard. So because of that, because it was his rookie card, because it's the thing that I, I guess, chase, it became a natural extension to pursue the autographed version of the minor league set, especially because I've, I've spent so much time around minor league baseball and it was a, it was really, really fun pursuing a set because it really emphasized a way for me to strategize about my collection. Mm -hmm. At the same time, you also start ignoring stuff that's happening along the periphery. So you're right. not paying as much attention to stuff outside of your set. So it's as an autograph collector and as somebody who's trying to, I guess, capture moments of history, even if they were not moments that you personally experienced, having the chance to document to, and I'm sure you did this as well, try to make sure that the autographs that you are buying from other people are legit and trying to ex experience the provenance of it. Um, the way that you did with the last guy for your 72 set where there's a backstory. For me, that's way more meaningful than submitting a card to a private signing and that being the last card I need done for my set where I've just paid X amount of dollars to receive a signed card. Um, right. And I think that the chase of in-person or through the mail, autograph collecting, even buying stuff from time to time, it forces you as a collector to take a particular stance right, uh, or take a pr particular perspective or philosophy when it comes to organizing your collection. And that can be, I think that can be really, really helpful when a person is super goal oriented. Mm -hmm. Like for both of us, it was, we have a set, we're trying to get a single version of every signed card. You know, it, it becomes its own kind of obsession. Yeah. And, and sometimes it, it wasn't even, I mean, as much as I appreciate a good story, sometimes it wasn't all story driven. Like 
Um, there was a, a player in the 72 set, Gerald Govin, where um, I think Mill Creek or somebody had $40 slabbed copies of his autograph on eBay. And I could have easily have just bought one of those. But instead, I ended reaching out to his daughter um, and she got one signed on the back for me, which I didn't, you know, that's not really what I preferred. But it's like, you know, if I can save $40 on 40 players, um, that's going to make this thing a whole lot more doable, where otherwise I probably wouldn't have finished that set. Um, so even some of the easier stuff that was out there, I had to kind of look for ways around that. So it was fun. It was like a game. Uh, at the same time, I'll, I'll never do it again. Um, I, I would not, I'm not trying to steer people away from it, but it's like, all right, I've been there, done that, took nine years, I'm moving on. Um, I feel like it's one of those things like you do it once and you realize how much works into it. And unless you have something that is really compelling you to go back around a second time. Nope. <laughs> Especially not. I definitely it's basketball's tricky. You can't do a vintage set because you know, there's all the Wilts and Pete's and those kind of guys. You can't do a 90 set because there's Jordan. Um, you know, you can't do a 2000 set because there's LeBron. All these guys are like virtually impossible. So I'm done with that space. It, the time that I did it in worked out for me because Wilt was you know reasonably priced then. He's not now. Pete was reasonably priced then. I didn't think he was, but he is now when you look at it. Um, so I'm, I'm beyond that. Uh, now, you mentioned that you were kind of casually working your way through the 2012 Panini set. Uh, I, I know part of that is just because you had access to a lot of those guys. That was around the time that we were out getting autographs. Yeah. Um, so I'm guessing that at the time that you were autographing basketball, you were probably ripping basketball packs more so because um, there was just a practical element to it. You needed stuff to get signed. You know, even if you lose out and you don't get a big hit in the packs, you really don't lose out because now you have these cards that you can go get signed, right? Absolutely. So as an in-person autograph collector, especially basketball at that time, Panini um, and NBA hoops were big friends, especially when they had the non-gloss versions mm -hmm. or in-person. I love 2012 hoops. Uh, as yeah, far 20, as just no prep. 2012 hoops required no prep. It was cardstock. It was standard. Whether you had a Sharpie or someone had a regular Bic pen, the car, the signature would stick to the card. Mm -hmm. um, that was really nice. And I like the 2012 Panini. I like the photography of the set. Yeah. And for me, the photography... I've always been more attracted to photo heavy sets. So like your stadium clubs or kind of your more higher end. But the nice thing about hoops and Panini was they still did really nice in close shots. Mm -hmm. Now the 2012 sets also had the benefit of, you know, it was the double rookie class, but they had the game photos from the previous, you know, from the first iteration of that double class. So that was kind of nice. Now you also, uh, and I moved away around 2013. So the only new hoops cards, I moved away in November. So hoops had just come out or I moved away December. I think hoops had just come out. Um, I had, I, I think I got my Oladipo cards in time to get those signed. I did. I had to get Anthony Bennett on a index card. Cause I didn't have that one then, which, you know, no huge loss now, but um, there was another 2013 rookie that you got. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Uh, I think we're talking about the Greek freak, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Which, so Giannis. So 
I, I have two really nice silver Sharpie signed. They're not full sig, but about as close to full signature as you can get. A lot more than you're going to get now. If you yeah. look at like the leaf stickers now, it's, it's like a, you know, like a T almost like a loopy T and then an A. Uh, I've seen these. Mike showed these to me. I was jealous. A lot more than that. There's like five or six characters to them. They're, they're nice. So I remember getting Giannis and it was shortly after you moved away, Kyle. I do remember that. And I remember I had the two cards. I bought a silver paint pen specifically for those cards because these were the Panini cards with the black backdrops. And even though I consider myself better at evaluating baseball talent than basketball talent, there was something about Giannis that his athleticism, the videos that he had from Europe, and just his like physical presence. Like This guy looked like he was going to be the guy that he is now. All those factors kind of made him my, my big to get when I think Larry Sanders was the mm -hmm. big name on the Bucks, He actually was, yeah. He, he was a yeah. big deal then. He was playing really well. I know some people are going to hear that and dismiss that. No, let that sink in for a minute. You know, Larry Sanders was a Larry big deal. San Larry Sanders was the Bucks big guy for a long time, or for a minute, I should say. But, I mean, I scored two of the nicer-looking Giannis autographs that I've seen out there, and this was before he was a, a name. Mm -hmm. um, I remember just getting it and being like, huh, they think highly of this guy. So do I, whatever. And then, you know, the past several years have happened. Right. And it was like, well, okay. So Giannis is really the Greek freak. As I mentioned, ripping those packs had kind of a, a practical element for you. Uh, well, before we move on here, I want to tell listeners about another practical element of ripping wax. And that comes via the show sponsor, Check Out My Cards. ComC continues to offer 50% off processing fees for all newly released trading card consignments with their ComC Fresh Pulls program. To qualify, cards must be received within 90 days of the hobby release date and submitted using the Elite Select or Mailbox Processing Service level. For more info, you can check them out on social media under the handle at CheckoutMyCards. All right. Well, switching gears here. Um, another reason I wanted to have you on the show today is because you currently work for the NASCAR Hall of Fame. And I know some people are going to think, you know, all right, we talked a lot about baseball. Now we're going to talk about NASCAR. I, I promise you that there, I will connect the dots a little bit here, uh, but go ahead and tell us, you know, what's your actual title at the Hall of Fame? And then what exactly do you do? I work at the Hall of Fame as an education specialist. So I'm a part-timer there. I work as a member of the exhibits team, and my job is mostly focused around public programming that revolves around explaining real-life concepts of science, engineering, mathematics, and critical thought in a real-world application of NASCAR. So my background is a little bit more focused on teaching kids using the artifacts of the museum. But I also have responsibilities that require me to consider how the exhibits that we produce, the artifacts that are on display can be related to something that is either educational or geared towards some sort of public program that is deemed positive, you know? Okay. You know, I don't know how many racing fans we've got uh, listening today. And I, you know, I've fallen out of kind of NASCAR viewership. 
for about two decades now. But I used to, uh, when I lived in Indiana, I used to follow NASCAR quite a bit. And um, it's interesting because NASCAR is really only a couple years younger than the NBA. So we're talking mm-hmm. about sports that are, are similar ages here. But um, and, and I know you're probably going to correct me on this, but when it comes to documenting history, it just feels like NASCAR is way behind now. So feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but it, do you think that's an accurate assessment? So I'm not sure if that's an accurate assessment. I will say one of the things that makes NASCAR an interesting subject for historical inquiry is that NASCAR doesn't really own much. NASCAR owns the title, owns the racing numbers, owns a limited number of tracks, but they hold very limited physical property. Like they, they're mostly intellectual property and branding. Right. Because um, even, even the Hall of Fame itself is not that old, correct? The Hall of Fame is it's going into its 11th class, so 12th year, because we did not induct during COVID. So the Hall of Fame is interesting and it's unique because the Basketball Hall of Fame, Football Hall of Fame, Baseball Hall of Fame, Hockey Hall of Fame, those are all either national, international. They're not specific to pro sports. NASCAR is very much a branded Hall of Fame. Mm -hmm. We're not concerned about F1. We're not concerned about Indy 500. It has to be NASCAR sanctioned or it's not involved. So it's interesting to see because NASCAR is one of the major North American sports that has, I guess, maybe like a different operational model than what you are used to seeing, where there's going to be like an expansion draft or an expansion movement. NASCAR is more about, I guess, maybe more owning the means of the race. Right. So I've covered this many times before, but everyone collects for different reasons. And we even talked about that earlier, where we talked about the time capsule and all those other things. I've talked about how I try to narrate the history of the game through my collection. And I basically have tried to build a mini museum. And I know not everyone's like that, but that's that's kind of what I'm trying to do. It's my mini Pacers museum and my mini uh, NBA museum and my mini NBA finals museum. That's kind of how I would describe my collection Um, Well, you work for an entity that's, you know, essentially doing the same thing, albeit on a much larger scale. How do you feel that your time collecting has helped you in your time working for a museum? As a personal collector, I have my own interests, right? Like part of it is I go to, I collect autographs at sporting events because it's part of the way that I engage with the sport that I like. At the same time, when you think about how working at an institution influences you as a collector, it's almost like working backwards. Like, imagine that you have the collection that you want, Mm -hmm. because that's where essentially where I work. I work at a museum. You have everything under the sun. You need to start to figure out what pieces tell stories and how to tell those stories and why. So institutional goals are very different from personal goals. And like, I know that one of the goals of my institution, which is publicly expressed, so I can talk about it, is that we're trying to collect unique artifacts, one of a kind, two of a kind, five of a kind. We're trying to be the repository for all that kind of important nostalgia, history, memorabilia, etc. 
-hmm. So kind of collecting the whole experience, whether it be an experience that at NASCAR, obviously the sport is on the racetrack, but is there something else that goes on in the grandstands or beyond that, that has historical value that's pertinent to the sport? So there's a great story that my boss's boss tells about his experience working at the Smithsonian and receiving an archive that was largely technical records and a small private collection of New Yorker political cartoons from the start of the invasion of Poland by Adolf Hitler till the very end of World War II. So he thought that was cool as could be. And his boss looked at him and said, this is really, really cool. This is super neat. This has a place for somebody somewhere. However, the New Yorker has its own archive. We're not in the business of archiving things that are already archived. We need to preserve what can't be replicated elsewhere. So this is a piece that, as cool as it is, is not relevant to the collection. And when he said that story to me, it all kind of clicked, like how museums and collections of those nature are very, very goal-oriented. They're not trying to collect everything under the sun. They're trying to capture specific moments. Okay. So you mentioned um, kind of making relics accessible. And you like the Hall of Fame in the sense that you know, there are some relics there that are accessible to you that otherwise wouldn't be. Now, um, being a basketball card relic collector, I know there that I've come across a lot of people that cringe at the thought of destroying relics. Like there's a, um, a YouTube video I've referenced many times before a Panini cutting up a Pete Maravich jersey. I get some weird satisfaction out of that video. Not that they're destroying something, but just, just seeing the process of this Jersey being cut up and how it goes into cards. And, and, but for me, that's, that's making something accessible that otherwise wouldn't be because I can't get to the hall of fame right now. Or I don't know, you know, where, if there's a, if Louisiana has some sort of Pete Maravich museum, I can't get there. So to me, you know, I think if, if you mentioned the Smithsonian, 99% of these exhibits are hidden. Well, maybe this is a way that they could be revealed. And I'm not saying we should cut up, you know, the constitution or something like that, but I think there is some middle ground. And I think card companies have helped, uh, you know, like a lot of people don't realize the Babe Ruth relics out there are from pants that were just tore up. You know, they're, they're not picking the, the most prime examples of historical relics and cutting them up. Now, maybe when we get low on them, maybe they might, but I, I doubt it, especially not with the price of, of uh, memorabilia these days. What are your thoughts on that? So I was actually thinking about this earlier because I know you've talked about how like they're player issued versus mm -hmm. game worn versus specific game worn. Mm -hmm. And I do feel like within the sports card hobby, there is a push to, I'm going to talk about it abstractly here, but connect the person with the athlete mm -hmm. so even if that is a game issued jersey that the person never touched oh that belonged to Devin Booker at one point he never even looked at it but it was in his ownership <laughs> or there's a, a recent example the at the NFL whatever they call their draft party or their you know photo shoot or whatever mm -hmm. the the hats 
they were they were not opening the hats entirely. They were just picking them up and touching the the players were touching the bills on their forehead. So it's an event worn cap, uh, or at least it's branded as such. But you know, I that sounds so goofy when you explain that to someone. But it's like you know what? I would rather have that hat that has been bumped on someone's head for one second than have one that comes from Dick Sporting Goods and has gone straight from the supply room to the card, um, which I, you know, not everyone thinks that way. And I, I respect yeah. that. No. And I, I think that's fair. I think that there's a lot of personal preference at play. So personally, as an autograph collector, I would rather have a unique card. And that is oftentimes a memorabilia card um, available to get signed. However, the influx of player-issued, non-game-worn stuff changes my perspective. As a museum perspective, it's interesting because you start to think about priceless artifacts, artifacts that you would never consider altering in any way. And then you start to think, well, even though the bat that you know, Babe Ruth's called shot was hit with, there's other Babe Ruth bats that are worth significantly less. Or same thing with like jerseys, right? Like what happens if a player doesn't actually really appear in the game, but it's a game used jersey, it's from the game, they scored eight points, a rebound, whatever, no cares. I think it really does depend on what the goal of the card company is and how they plan on delivering it. So I could see how maybe, because I know you love NBA Finals patches. Mm -hmm. I could see how like a Finals patch card, like a really nice one, would be a, a big hit in a Panini product. I could see why someone might do that for something that there are multiple games of. Right. Well, and even a Finals, you know, they wear at least probably two jerseys a game. For yeah. some players, not, and that's not a, an absolute for every player. So, you know, I suppose with NASCAR, it's the same thing. Let's, let's get the tires, let's get the lug nuts, let's get the things that are all expendable. Uh, but the other stuff, leave it as is maybe. It's, it's a very interesting spot to be in as somebody who appreciates conservation, right? Like part of me does not want to see a pistol Pete Jersey cut up. Right. At the same time, part of me is like, oh, I would definitely buy. You You would love, if I gave you that card, you wouldn't turn it down. Exactly. You wouldn't say, I don't support this activity. The damage is done. Let's collect it, right? Exactly. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's a very interesting question about curatorial responsibility. Mm -hmm. And what do we as private collectors who may be a little bit more willing so like your babe ruth example like torn pants who cares um i can see others value in that <sighs> i feel weirder about items that might have had some sort of historical significance well it, it's certainly something to think about let's um let's move it back from the the museum then to back to mike and um you know in all our time together you like a lot of things you never struck me as a nascar guy um, yeah. I never saw you in a Dale Earnhardt tee walking around, but, um, as we close out here today, I want to know how you think that this job and this experience at a museum, maybe, you know, you're a little bit of an outsider. How has that helped shape your perspective on collecting as a whole? 
as an outsider, I have a kind of a unique position where I don't really have a personal interest in it, but I have a professional responsibility. I'm part of some sort of industry that respects the heritage and history of the sport. So I'm always approaching things with almost a double thing. Like on one hand, I'm like, how cool would that be if you are a NASCAR collector? On the other hand, it's like, does this object have historical significance? I guess for me, it's more of a, a way of thinking about my own collection. Like I'm like, well, I like to think that I've got a cool collection, right? Mm -hmm. And all that stuff. But end of the day, I'm exposed to dozens and dozens of cars and cool stuff that would appeal to NASCAR fans. And I guess for me, it's just kind of like a, a realization that I own a particular type of commemoration that I want to do. And it's commemorating my experiences by all my autographs are in binders based on the years I got them. So that's how I kind of commemorate that experience. So it's about different modes and models of thinking about these Cards, signatures, relics, whatever. It gives you an understanding of how like you as a personal collector can appreciate something, but how an institution like a Hall of Fame or a museum has very particular obligations that go beyond the scope of a personal collector. Well, thankfully, we've got Instagram, so we uh, we can find people that will appreciate the things that uh, that we have that maybe a museum would turn their back on. We can appreciate those things. You could always donate to Kyle's private museum if to you want. My, right to my to my wax museum that uh, is probably needs to downsize. People ask me a lot about consolidation, and it, it's just it's hard. I, I like too much stuff, like I talked about last week. Well, Mike, I'm glad that we finally did this. Um, you know, I've, I've been thinking about it for a while. And I have to say, I think you're the first museum employee to come on the show. So uh, congratulations for that. I have a feeling this isn't the last time that we'll be hearing from you either. Before I let you go, though, feel free to plug anything maybe that you're working on or looking for, or if, if you want to give us a social media handle, you know, feel free to do so. The next few moments here are yours. Absolutely. So at the moment, I don't have many particular collecting goals. My social media is milb.fan on Instagram. Um, that's where you'll find most of my reportings on stuff. I'll try to post photos of um, stuff I've either gotten through the mail or in person or some comments on that. I occasionally will talk smack to Kyle on his Instagram profile. So you might see me there as well. So let's, uh, let's at least get those Giannis autographs up and maybe some of your basketball stuff. If you've got pictures of that handy, uh, oh, maybe sure. uh, once this episode's published, we'll make sure that stuff gets up. So thanks again, Mike. Absolutely. Kyle, thank you so much. All right. Well, there you have it. Thanks again to Mike for taking time out of his schedule to come on the show. I know we talked a little bit about racing there, by the time you listen to this show, I will have started my vacation in Indianapolis, the racing capital of the world. Uh, but I'll be looking for basketball cards. Rest assured, though, I'm sure I'll have plenty to say about that in the next week, including my in-person trade with Vintage Pacers, our little trip to the show, meeting up with some of you, so I'm excited about that. As for today's conversation with Mike, maybe there was something we talked about that resonated with you. 
feel free to reach out to me on social media. You can find me on Instagram under the handle at Wax Museum Podcast. I'm also on Twitter under at Wax Museum PC. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to support the show by doing all of your eBay purchasing through the link on my site, which is www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. There's a big eBay logo at the top. Click that, and it should give me a small percentage of whatever you purchase in the 24 hours that follow. Once again, that's www.waxmuseumpodcast.com. In the meantime, if you like the content I'm providing, please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcast. Hit up the Podbean site for a link to the merch store, tag Taco Bell, and let them know they can pay me in burritos. And until next time, this is the Wax Museum Podcast. Podcast.